Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 54 of Trail Society, brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we are all, I think, actually in our homes, which does not happen a whole lot and uh, won't happen for a while, I think, after (laughs) this recording or one of the next recordings, as we all have a lot of travel coming up. So we're recording a little bit early this time, but I want to check in with both of you, Hilly. Um, you've been racing on fatter tires a whole lot. And when this comes out, actually, this will come out on the 15th of August, which will be just a couple days after you've tackled, hopefully successfully, the Leadville 100 mountain bike ride. So talk to us a little bit about, um, obviously you've raced on the gravel bike a lot over the last couple of years, as far as like working through injury, doing something a little bit new this Mm -hmm. year, fatter tires, some new, some new racing, keeping, you know, keeping things or continuing to mix things up, I guess is how I'd look at it. So how has it been mixing things up this summer? Oh gosh. It's a, it's been a lot of it terrifying as well as like, um, character building. I mean, it's, it's, it's so humbling to start, you know, a sport like mountain biking. I mean, I, I I literally just got my first mountain bike end of June, um, like early July and was like, yeah, you know, I can do like cross country races. It's going to be cool, but it's not, it's not the same as like a gravel bike race It's like so much more technical, um, things. And both of you guys know this, um, body position, like all this stuff. It's like, so there's a lot of, you know, the same like fitness carries over, but, um, everything else is pretty different. So I kind of, I really wanted to, I mean, I've been using the bike as kind of a means of recovery. Um, mm-hmm you know, and, and you, you both know, I, I train a lot on a bike. I like it. Um, it's very fun. It provides a lot of, um, just, just newness, freshness, but, um, it's, a, it's another thing to try to race on a bike. And that's something I decided to do this season is really to try harder, um, to actually try to race and try to figure out that strategy. It's been, it's way different racing an ultra gravel bike race, like unbound. We talked about that before versus like, an ultra for, um, a mountain bike. Um, it's got some of the same principles, like you eat a lot, you drink a lot. So, you know, like still using the same principles we talk about, but it's, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot different from like a technique and like even, um, like the surginess of a bike versus like a bike race versus a running race. So it's, it's been a really cool way to keep my kind of competitiveness alive, to work on the kind of the sharp end of my fitness, even as I'm building up running. Um, but the exciting part is, is that, um, of all of these new adventures and like engaging with the new community, it's like, it's like the same types of people out there, you know, that like Corinne, we were just talking, um, it's like, well, we will, we already, we already know what she said, but you guys are gonna, you know, um, hopefully listen, um, listen to her, the, the latest episode about her talking about her cas- cascade crest, um, 100. And she talked about the community there. It's the same type of people just looking to push their their limits and their boundaries instead of on two feet, it's in two wheels. So um you just need to give a little bit more birth when you when you pass people. There's a little bit more tactics there. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Things choke up a little bit differently. It's it's nice <laughs> to suck at something. It's like why I rock climb. Yeah. It's like really fun to try new yeah. things and do and like develop new skills. And yeah, it's a it's a constant I mean, I've scorpioned off of so many things on my mountain bike. Oh my God. Same. I feel like I get less injured on a mountain bike than running though, because it's almost like I fall so quickly that I don't even notice I'm falling until I'm on the ground. Yeah. You're like, whoops, okay. We're down. And that that's like, I feel like for the hard part for a lot of people is like that fear of like potentially falling. But once you've done it a couple of times, you're like, okay, like this happens. Like, yeah, I I I can't imagine racing a mountain bike after riding for a month. Like I've ridden for four years now and I feel like I could probably race, but I still like, don't really want to. 
it's scary. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. The passing and everything. I don't like people riding right on my tail on single it's, track. Honestly, I don't, I don't either. It's something I have to get, have to constantly like psych myself up for and get used to. It does. It's definitely not natural. Um, but I think for me, it was more of a way just to like stay, just to try to stay a little bit, um, motivated to like, to have a goal to train for, yeah. for me. And, um, it was so funny during the, like some of these races, like, especially at like at the stage race for Leadville, I was like climbing super well. And I'm like, see you guys in the downhill, like give me some tips. But like, it was, it was cool to, you know, to feel like, okay, I can hang on the ups. And then it's just like, well, you know what? I'm just gonna just keep it loose, but not too loose on the downhills. Yeah. I've raced the Missoula Pro XCT and that's like very, there's like it's like climbers course, like notoriously, Mm -hmm. but it's got some like really scary downhill. Like I can't ride the A line on it. It's like a mandatory, very big drop. And I'd be like, okay, I can climb though. And you'd be like, okay, like when it's time for someone to go by me on the downhill, like maybe I'll have a big enough gap on the uphill. We'll find out, but yeah, yeah, you live, you live and you learn. It was, it was cool though. I mean, um, I was, I was very proud. I got, um, I got on the the podium for my age group, which is a notoriously a pretty competitive age group. And I was like, F six, sixth lady. So top 10, I was super happy. Like really, really happy, but that's awesome for me. It's not about the results. It's a, it's a way to like be motivated and in, and in that, like I'm still working on my running fitness and that's coming along. So hopefully I have some races to do in uh, yeah. two feet in September. So I was going to ask you about that. Cause I looked at your ultra sign up the other day for something like I would needed something <laughs> from it. And I was like, wow, Hillary has signed up for a little bit of everything. And I think it's probably oh. because you were signed up for like, like you probably signed up, you know, six, eight months ago yeah. for things. So you've got like all these like conflicting things on your ultra sign up right now. And as like, we've seen you build up on your feet a little bit, you know, doing some runs, logging some bike to runs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Where can we maybe expect to see you this fall? Do you have, do you have any sort of concrete plans or at least a Lucy, a Lucy goosey, tentative, hopeful plan. Tentative hopeful yes. plans is where we like to hem ourselves. I like that. Yes. Cause it can, it can be amended. Um, so I'm aiming for my first race back to be at mammoth trail fest. Um, and there's three options to choose from. So we'll see what I do. Um, nice. and that's the end of September. Um, and then there's also a really cool race. Um, you guys have heard, obviously like we've talked about this, like eco trail, there's like different eco trails around the world. Um, there's one, I met the the organizer of the race out in Dublin when I was doing the transatlantic way. And so I think I'm going to be able to do that in the end of September. And again, there's lots of, um, or early October, there's lots of, um, different distances. So, um, we'll see, but it's, it's nice to kind of have a rough goal and just be like, we'll, we'll see where I'm at. We'll see how, how the buildup goes, but not to put too much pressure, but makes yeah. me really excited to put a running race on the calendar. So. Yeah. I saw Mammoth Trail Fest was on your, was on your ultra sign up and I was like, heck yeah. Conflicting uh, with run rabbit run. Oops, yeah. And I, I was like, I think that, that was an early, I think that was an early <laughs> sign up on that one. But yeah, Eco Trails is the race. Um, Katie Shide ran a really, really fast yeah. 50 mile race mm-hmm. in her build up to Western States. And it was the Eco Trails Paris mm-hmm. race there, which was like I, something stupid. She ran so, so fast. Six, close to six hours. It was very yeah. fast. Yeah. Like six yeah. and a half, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So yeah. fast. Yeah. So it's the same, like in, in the Wicklow mountains, it's very, it's more runnable train. They've got an amazing trail community. I was able to meet some, some people out there when I was in for over there for the transatlantic way. And hopefully I'll get to combine some, um, some cycling stuff there with the, with the bike community awesome. in Dublin as well. So heck yeah. Love yeah. it. And then Keely, I know that you kind of like tentatively 
been like, you're back to running some, like you're being cautious to not fall down. Mm-hmm. You like, is, are you hungry at all to do something in the fall? Or are you kind of playing it by year at this point? Mm, I have like a lot of conflictions right now. So I'd say <laughs> I was super optimistic or like hungry right after the injury and like started running a little bit and then just totally was like, I need a break. Cause I realized I just didn't really give myself a break after States. Um, and so currently not running, but currently totally fine with it and just biking and like doing kind of nice. what I want to, and just really want just like an off season for a little bit. And then all I want to do is like run when I want to for a couple of weeks for once. And then I'll think about racing. Um, I just feel like I've been hammering for like, from like last September and realized I just kind of wanted to run for myself and not for a race. Um, but I'll probably race. I would assume like late fall. I don't think I'll schedule anything for September, October, just because mm-hmm. of medical school interviews. And like, I don't know if I'll have to go to other places for them. Um, and like that to me is way higher priority than any race. So I'd hate to like pick a race and then have a med school interview like the Wednesday or Thursday before and be like, well, <laughs> now what do I do? So yeah, for me, brutal. it's just like, maybe I'll find something in like December, November, January or something like that. But um, I honestly like got to get my stoke back on my own first. So TBD. Nice. I think that's really, really reasonable and like very thoughtful. So we'll see you at something who, who knows yes. what it is, but we're excited for you to get to the, the ultra marathon that is medical school interviews this fall. First, before we dive into a tiny bit of news though, we had to give a shout out to the folks over at AG one. They've been helping us keep this thing off the ground since the very beginning. Again, that's that you know, immune supporting, health supporting, gut supporting, green drink that some of us love and some of us probably, you know, take as a shot as quickly as possible. Or if you're me, mix it into a smoothie. It's kind of one of my go-tos. Most recently, the blackberries are going off around my house and I've been mixing up a blackberry um, smoothie with my AG1 powder in it most mornings. Um, But if you want to try your hand, you want to get your hands on some AG1, you're going to go over to www.athleticgreens.com slash trail society. And there with your first purchase, you're going to get a one-year free supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. So again, go over to athleticgreens.com slash trail society today. On the news front, I've been following along. I don't know if you guys have been watching Team USA women um, throwing down. There's been a lot of sass given to Team USA women on the soccer front in the Women's World Cup because what's really cool is that the sport has like elevated across the globe. And we're so used to the Team USA women just like completely throttling every other team because our fitness is high, our support level is high like very, very talented team. And it's like the rest of the world has like leveled up as well. So these matches are incredibly competitive. And uh, there's a way to draw with the Netherlands and people are like, oh my gosh, like team USA, what's up? And it's like, no, like women's soccer is on fire right now. Mm -hmm. But one of the cool things going on. um, So FIFA, they did this during the men's world cup as well, but there was a ban on the rainbow LGBTQ plus uh, pride armbands. And they, the FIFA was like, here's some more acceptable armbands for you to wear. And the players did not find that to be adequate at all. And they've been doing things like rainbow colored hair, um, wearing trans and LGBT, 
uh, IQ plus like themed nail polish in matches, like kind of these little acts of defiance and support. And also stadium officials have kind of gotten in on it um, at a match in Brisbane Suncorp Stadium in Australia um, just a couple of weeks ago when the English and Haitian teams were playing. The players were welcomed onto the pitch with like a rainbow light display illuminating the stadium's rafters, which is really, really cool. And in the article on them.com, it said that, you know, those those lights were brighter than thousands of armbands. And so that was really sweet. And then quoted in the article as well was this statement of there would be no women's football without the LGBTIQ plus people who have supported it across the globe, wrote a, wrote a coalition of former women's soccer players and human rights advocates in a letter to FIFA officials earlier this month, condemning the rainbow armband armband ban in a world of growing anti LGBTIQ plus sentiment, including laws that penalize who we are FIFA and every organization associated with the beautiful game should be taking a stand in favor of human rights of dignity and for LGBTIQ plus people. And so it's been really cool to see the women's teams across the globe really be very united in this. Um, and I just thought it was really, really cool. So hell yeah, I've been watching, I've been watching um, as many matches as I can physically fit into my work day on my like secondary desktop screen. Um, so if you've been uh, delayed and waiting on an email from me, it's probably because I'm yelling at soccer players on my computer <laughs> screen. So apologies, apologies there. If you need to email me, just send it, send it again, ping me again. <laughs> Keely, you had mentioned uh, in a text exchange that you'd listened to a super interesting podcast yeah. this week. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about it. Yeah, I, I thought it'd be fun to bring this up um, because it reminds me of an episode we did a while ago. So mm-hmm. if we go back like a year or two, we had an episode on birth control and we talked about the history of birth control and how it started kind of as this um, this way to prevent birth, to prevent pregnancy, but was not tested. So they like threw out all these different hormone combinations and we're just kind of like hoping they would work. Um, and I listened to a podcast that aired on July 28th from the daily, the New York times podcast called menopause is having a moment. And it almost, it outlined the history of menopause in a very similar way to how birth control was started. And I just thought it was really interesting and also just a very informative podcast for those who are maybe going in their perimenopause or postmenopause journey. Um, so highly recommend listening to it, but basically in a nutshell, it talked about the beginning of menopause and basically menopause started in the 40 or the, the, sorry, back up a little bit, the hormone, um, hormone therapy for menopause started in the forties. And basically by the 1970s, it was super, super popular and women all around the world were taking it. And there were no like negative health outcomes associated with it at the time. Um, however, there was a study published in 2002 that basically pumped the brakes really hard on menopause hormone therapy, because it basically said there were these increased risks for women for things like cancer and heart disease. And the data was really, really like exclaimed in all of these news news outlets because it was like, do not take this. This is awful. Um, however, kind of like a lot of the birth control history after that kind of scare, there was a lot more digging done on that data and just on the like different kinds of women who was tested on. And they found that actually like those who started the therapy when they were early in menopause had a less likelihood of getting those disorders. And especially women who started it in their fifties or early sixties had a less likelihood of getting those disorders too. And that actually like the percentages that they exclaimed towards these older women were actually like really, really small. And the interpretation of them by the public was just like kind of misled by how the data was presented. And so 
this kind of podcast just really highlights those things. And then just basically talks to all of the negative ailments that women undergo with menopause and kind of gives the power back to the women to just feel like they can go to their doctor and be like, Hey, should I get on hormone therapy? Should I get on this kind of hormone therapy? Like, I don't want to feel like I have no option and I shouldn't feel that way because hormone therapy can be good for some women. And so I just thought it was really cool to re like create that narrative for women. So they feel empowered to go seek change if they can. And then if their doctor feels like it's a good decision, then they can, they can get on that for some years that might help alleviate some of those symptoms. It's yeah, it's super interesting. I was listening to something recently and they talked about how like for the longest time, like the, some, uh, it has to do with like, what, like with our, how we thought the uterus like existed in the human body for a long time. And it was like, if there, if the uterus did not have something in it, i.e. a baby, it was like likely to wander around the body and like cause hysteria. And I was just like this, that was like legitimate, like quote unquote medicine, like, you know, obviously like way back in the day, but that was like why they're like, oh, women have hysteria when their uterus like wanders around their body. And the way to quell that is to have them be pregnant, Um, which I'm just like, wow, there's a lot to unpack in that idea. Um, But we're learning. We've come so far. We've come so far and yet we have a long ways to go still. So (laughs) Um, I think we should probably at some point in time, I think kind of doing a, another deep dive into menopause and menopause uh, mm-hmm. for the endurance athlete is mm-hmm. or endurance athletes with menopause, et cetera, or experiencing like, you know, so many women in, in that like perimenopause mm-hmm. space, yeah. like dealing, de- like riding the roller coaster. So we'll have to do some more on that. I know that it's a topic of interest for lots and lots of our listeners, but um, before we dive into our interview today, which is amazing with Peyton Thomas, mm-hmm. we have to give a shout out to our other sponsor and that's the feed I mean, once again, has been with us almost since the beginning, a company that we've really enjoyed working with. Again, they're your one-stop shop for all your nutrition needs, your recovery tool needs, your breakfast needs, uh, your coffee needs, whatever it might be. Like it's really, you can find a little bit of stuff there. It's been really been cool to be partnered with them over the last year or so. And again, you can go over to www.thefeed.com slash trail society. And there you can get um, $15 of credit at the store um, every quarter. So $60 over the year. And you can also get one of our super sick water bottles. We're trying to see if we can get a whole plethora of water bottles to make it to UTMB with us Mm. so that hopefully we can meet a bunch of you in person and hand out some really fun water bottles um, over in Chamonix. But until then, if you would like to try the feed, that's where we're going to send you over to, again, www.thefeed.com slash Trail Society, our personal favorite snack shop. And I think with that, we can talk about Peyton Thomas. We got to sit down with Peyton um, a couple of weeks ago to record this interview and we're just blown away, like literally blown away. 27 years old and does more than all of us combined. We're pretty sure (laughs) currently she's an ultra runner running for both normal and Patagonia, like talk about a dream scenario here, but she's also a, an advocate in the racial justice space and the environmental space. She's a postdoctoral research associate at UC Boulder and the Institute for Arctic and Alpine Research, working on the Arctic Rivers Project, which is so cool. We go into some detail in the interview on that. She's got her PhD in biology and marine biology from UNC, where she studied fish 
fish physiological responses to environmental stressors. Um, we talk about that too, results of global warming. And we learned so much about her journey into this space experience being, uh, being underrepresented in science and the ways that she has utilized the trail running community to help fight for environmental justice. So without further ado, we're going to step out of the way and dive into our interview with Peyton Thomas. I'm Peyton Thomas. Um, I'm a scientist and a runner. And yeah, that's me. <laughs> I love how humble you are. <laughs> I've been reading up a ton about you on your background, and I just have to keep reminding myself that you're only 27 and you've accomplished so much. And it's just so cool. Um, and so you know, just kind of right off the bat, what is like the biggest motivator for you to go and get so much done so far in your life for, and stand for so many important causes? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I just, I don't even think I really stand for that many causes, to be honest. I'm just doing things that I'm like interested in and I sort of weave in between interests all the time and just find what lights my fire at a certain point and just go with that and then pivot <laughs> at some other point. And yeah, don't really have a one direction or one particular passion that's driving everything. I can relate to that. I think also just using passion to drive you in any sort of way of life is, is important. Um, so one of your passions is marine biology. We all know this. And so you got your PhD in marine biology in 2022, studying some really cool stuff, studying the physiological responses of fish to changing water temps and oxygen levels that are kind of like predictive ways to see how global warming will impact the water that they're living in. Yeah. Um, and now you're currently working in the Instar at CU Boulder. Shout out CU Boulder. I did some work there too. Um, on the Arctic Rivers Project, uh, looking at the Arctic Rivers and how they're impacted by climate change. And so would you mind just talking us through your journey in academia and how you ended up doing your postdoc in this area? Yeah, um, my journey through academia was sort of um, on accident. I was, or I got into my first research lab when I was in undergrad, but I wasn't really planning on doing that. I just got pulled aside by one of my professors and she was like, hey, you want to go catch some fish <laughs> one summer? And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds fun and exciting and like different from just being outside in the heat running all the time because I did my undergrad at uh, Baylor in the middle of Texas and uh, not very <laughs> fun. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good to find other other outlets and yeah she pulled me into some really cool microplastic research and and I have uh throughout high school and as a kid I was always really interested in just exploring different animals but I didn't think that that was going to bring me into a research avenue of my life and uh, once I got into that microplastic work I just got really interested um in other environmental impacts and I felt like at my university, they weren't really doing a ton of work around climate impacts. And that was something that, uh, you know, uh, as you're going through the world, you're just hearing more and more, like every day we're always hearing more and more about um, different impacts from climate change on our lives and what that means for our future. And so I knew that was a trajectory I wanted to go in because I knew that a, there are going to be jobs and like looking at climate change impacts, which is super helpful and important. Um, but yeah, also um, it's very much needed and we still 
just don't know enough about um, what is happening in the world. Um, so yeah, I got pulled into that. And then uh, my graduate school work changed a little bit because I originally wasn't working on anything really related to climate change, at least directly, but more indirectly. I started out doing a project that was focused on uh, sea squirts or tunicates, if anyone has heard of them. Um, yeah, so fun. I talk to people about them and people always look at me like I'm crazy because I'm describing this weird, like blobby, globby animal. Um, but yeah, I started out uh, looking at the impact of this invasive species on uh, oyster hatcheries along the coast of North Carolina um, because the prevalence of this species particular species was increasing, uh, partially due to the changing water conditions in the area, um, which I found super interesting. Um, yeah. And then I got to go on the climate change trajectory that I wanted, but, uh, or focusing on, um, water quality impacts due to climate change. But it's funny because the reason I was able to like pivot like that was because, uh, I was, my research project, the tunicate one was impacted by this massive hurricane that happened in North Carolina that was fueled by climate change. <laughs> um, so it was like sort of this crazy uh, moment in my life where um, I could really see things coming together. And then it's like, okay, well, I guess I should just focus on different climate change impacts because that is what life is telling me right now. Um, yeah. And then in terms of studying fish or marine biology in general, um, I just think oceans are really cool and uh, fish are really cool. And there are so many different species and there's like this endless uh, learning component, which I find really fun. Um, so just every day you're learning something different, maybe not doing something different, but you're <laughs> learning something different, which is really fun. And then um, I pivoted with this Arctic Rivers project to focus on, it's more on freshwater fish uh, right now, and then on anadromous fish or amphidromous. So fish that will spend any portion of their life cycle in the ocean environment. Um so it's more focused on that and like different impacts of changes to river conditions under projected uh, climate scenarios. Um, Cause the, the Arctic in particular, uh, the landscape up there, especially in Alaska and Canada is changing really rapidly. So a lot of communities that are out there um, are dealing with a lot of uncertainty in terms of like what resources they'll have into the future. How should they plan uh, for uh, certain years? Like whether it's going to be an insanely hot year and there's drought and fires versus a really cold year, there's like tons of flooding. And uh, since there's so much ice and permafrost up there, it's changing a lot of the landscape where there's like so much more erosional processes happening. And then while people are worried about that, um, there's also a question of what does this do to different fish populations? And um, in the Arctic, especially, there's uh, we know way less about those species than we do in a lot of other areas just because of the accessibility of getting to those places. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting to to sort of be like, OK, well, what is going to happen? And and I. Uh, get to do like some work up there, but a lot of the work I'm doing right now is different modeling scenarios of like growth outcomes and what could be. And 
uh, using that information to inform these communities, um, particularly indigenous communities about like what potential fish species will thrive in the future. And is there a way, also, is there a way to use some of this information, these models, um, to make the case for more indigenous stewardship in these areas? Because in a lot of cases, these communities don't have uh, access or rights to their tribal lands to do the traditional stewarding that they once were. So, um, and a lot of people are interested in going back to that um, and like really reconnecting with the land and water in that way. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a weird academic journey and like a big pivot from <laughs> what I'm doing now is sort of a big pivot from what I was doing before doing more like physiology based lab work and everything. So it's been fun just learning a lot and seeing where that takes me next. Yeah. I think the journey is, is always long and winding, but obviously there's like some clear kind of connections or through lines there. I think I mentioned this to you at Broken Arrow, but I always think it's really interesting when I think of like CU Boulder and Colorado being this kind of like not a not a water abundant location, but there seems to be a lot of water research that takes place at CU. Can maybe you give a shout out to kind of the work that's being done there or why CU Boulder seems to be a hub for a bunch of this research? Because to me, I'm like Colorado River, check, but I'm not like I'm I'm on the coast, like I'm in Seattle. I've got lots of water yeah. here. So I'm just so curious about that. Yeah. I mean, it sort of I, I also feel like it's a little bit random, but maybe it makes sense. Like there are just a lot of uh, national labs around Colorado, especially in the Front Range area. So you have like uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric uh, Administration. They're based in the Front Range and you have uh, the, I don't even know what the acronym actually means, but <laughs> NIST, they make all these instruments. I don't know. It's just all... <laughs> There are a lot of it's national national Institute for science and technology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then they like, they work closely with NOAA too, but yeah. I, and, and like, you know, uh, like a lot of other things, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, there, I think there's just like this huge conglomeration of, uh, federal funding, honestly, and money and technology here. And a lot of people that are studying atmospheric changes and oceanographic changes, um, that makes it really ripe for a lot of this work. And it is a combination, like I know a lot of people are doing a combination of both modeling and fieldwork uh, around the world. <clears throat> it's pretty cool because I also wasn't imagining uh, Boulder being anything that is like a water hub. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really interesting. And, and a lot of people are focused on, uh, like extreme environments, um, like a lot of icy landscapes, um, things like working in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. Um, but then there are also, uh, quite a few people working in marine related systems that aren't just looking at, uh, like physical processes, but are doing more of the, the biological work. Uh, and so it's been cool to, to meet more people that are part of that community, um, because, yeah, it, it is pretty different uh, moving to the middle of the country and still being surrounded by <laughs> people who know a lot about uh, marine life and all of that. And uh, it's like pretty much the same as living on the coast, except for you just don't get the, the water access. <laughs> 
Yeah, Boulder seems to be a very lovely hodgepodge of extremely nerdy scientists and extreme yeah. endurance athletes. And somehow those two mesh really well. That's pretty hilarious. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> but kind of on that note, um, to me, that that environment feels like a little bit more up your alley. It's like, oh, you're also an endurance athlete. Um, and you love to research these extreme environments. Um, but I saw on your website that you do a lot of kind of promotion for a lot of different chapters of the women in STEM programs, um, most namely other programs similar to like the black ecologist section. Um, and so I have to imagine that your journey maybe not has, has not always been how it is maybe in Boulder. And so I kind of wanted you to talk through just how your journey through academia, um, has been. And if you've, if you've felt ever like it's been unwelcoming or anything like that? Yeah, I think, I mean, for the most part, and this has been sort of a, a lived experience um, throughout my entire life where, yeah, just everywhere I've been has been majority white and having uh, spaces where you can connect with other BIPOC people um, or Black people is just like, sort of rare, more rare here now living in the front range versus living in uh, the Southeast where I grew up. But yeah, um, just in these larger systems. And I didn't really think about that in terms of academia until I got into grad school, um, which has been a, yeah, just an interesting experience. I, I don't think I've ever felt unwelcoming um, in a direct sense. Like, I think it's just been this lingering feeling of like, well, I'm the only black person here. And there are like microaggressions and small things that happen that can really change the way you feel about a, a community of people. Um, and the way that changes is by adding more diversity to, uh, to the community that you're in. And like, seeing someone that is similar to you and like has similar life experiences as you is really helpful and ways that I think it really hit me particularly difficultly um, was uh, during the pandemic, but it was also, uh, it, it was also an opportunity during the pandemic to connect with other black academics. Cause that's when like all of these groups started coming about, which was really exciting. And yeah, one group in particular that got me through the rest of my PhD was this group called Black Women and Ecology, Evolution and Marine Science. And their acronym is BWEAMS, which is a little bit ridiculous, but, <laughs> but it's like this, I love am it. it's this amazing group of women that uh, don't just do like marine science stuff. It's like the full spectrum of biology and ecology and just like connecting with other people that are in similar experiences as you and it's just so funny and also a little sad that like everyone has the same uh story of like yeah I was like one or one of two black people in this department and I don't know what to do and like ways that I want to do outreach or do research is not necessarily uh like liked or considered by my peers in this area and I just want to do things a little differently um and so yeah I think that group was just a really cool way for for me to connect with other people and have that sense of community um at the at a time where I mean it is probably still difficult and maybe even more difficult now to to recruit diversity in academic spaces especially with like supreme court things and all of that but, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely hasn't been 
like an unwelcoming situation for me, but I definitely feel like I could have more, like I would have liked to be in more spaces and still would like to be in more spaces with more uh, BIPOC people. And just like seeing the innovation happen and like seeing the community is really fun. Like we got, we did a um, our first in-person conference for the Bweems group uh, in January. And that was just so cool and really powerful because you're just seeing like all of these beautiful Black women sharing their research with each other and collaborating and being like, this is the direction I want to take my work. And like, you can be a co-author on this paper. Like you can be a collaborator on this project. We can find funding together to do this. And what's exciting is like more, I think in academia, there are, there are are more opportunities to uh, create more spaces like that um, because over the past few years, there's just been more awareness raised about how big of a problem it actually is, which is really exciting. Um, <clears throat> like this one group that uh, I'm a part of as well is called Black and Marine Science um, or BIMS. And it's uh, both of these organizations are international. Um, but BIMS partnered with this really big journal, uh, Journal of Integrative and Comparative Biology, mm. create like an all black authorship issue. And like that opportunity is available to anyone in the uh, organization um, or even outside of the organization who like doesn't know about it. Um, yeah, so I think just more things like that are coming about the more we like vocalize a lot of the, the issues that are happening. Um, yeah. I will have to say the acronyms are awesome. They all sound just so badass, (laughs) like so fun. Um, But I mean, it's also really cool to hear you talk about that because it sounds like you're also going a little bit anti-academia where you're saying that Mm -hmm. all these other people who are part of Bweems want collaboration. They want to share their grant money. They want to share their authorship. And I feel like that is something I love in academia too, but it's really, really rare. And it makes me so sad because there's, like there's so much, there's so many things we could do if we were able to work together. And a lot of people in academia, academia don't really like doing that. <laughs> so that's really cool to hear. Yeah. Sort of crazy. I Like, I don't know. I went into academia also thinking that like people were going to be super open and uh, <laughs> yeah, like wanting to collaborate on everything. And it, it definitely depends on like who you're who you're working with. Cause I think I've experienced both sides of the spectrum, <laughs> which is just crazy. It's like, yes. we all be collaborating on everything. Like that's the whole point of science and research and learning more about the world. Yeah, yeah. totally. Man, I could go down an academia rabbit hole pretty much all day, but we'll pivot to <laughs> another area of your life. Um, since you wear so many hats, um, and you've been also kind of setting the standard in this other space as being an advocate for increasing diversity in the running world as well. Um, I first heard about you listening to some podcasts over the 2020 Olympic trials mm-hmm. as the first U.S. born African-American to make the trials. But obviously, like, you're way more than that stat. And I'm sure your relationship with running is vast. And so I'm curious to hear kind of how you got into running and what that journey has looked like for you also. Yeah, um, I got into running in high school just happenstance because one of my friends was wanted to cross train for for swimming (laughs) and I was like sure I'll cross train for uh volleyball and and I like hated running at first like I didn't run a step really before (laughs) starting cross country 
in high school um, and I would walk in like all of the 5k races <laughs> and my team really upset with me and they're like who is this girl she is horrible because because I would walk but then I would still I would like run again and then still beat some of my teammates and then it just yeah I was not on a lot of people's good sides <laughs> at the beginning of my running career but um yeah, I eventually grew to love it actually through track um, just because of like how many different people you get to be around and and the the atmosphere is so different from cross country to track. And, and I loved the way that you could use running as a way to see different places. And I really think I tried to embrace that um, <clears throat> throughout high school and I wasn't really thinking about it on a competitive uh, perspective at that time. Um, and then once I got to college, it turned into more of a, oh, this is serious, like a more competitive nature. Um, and I, I mean, running is pretty cool. Cause I think for the most part, uh, like the running community is very friendly and, and welcoming. And I love that and appreciate that. Um, and I, I love that at least with, with cross country and track, um, cause I didn't get into trail running until a few years ago. Um, but yeah, at least with cross country and track, you do get like a pretty good blend of people, though there is still the dichotomy of like cross country is primarily white and then track is like more diversity, but, um, but even still, it was just like, I could have this cool community and like use that as a way to meet other people from other places. And that's really what, I think I got the most out of running, uh, collegiately. Um, and then after the fact when, cause after college, I didn't really expect to be racing competitively again. I was just so tired of it. Um, but it was like, when I moved to a new place, the first thing that I looked to was a running group, um, because I just didn't know, uh, another way to find community pretty fast. And, and like through that, that was just a great way to connect with people and, uh, have people to spend time with doing something that, that I love. Um, yeah. And so I think ultimately my relationship with running has been pretty great. It's just been this really huge way to form community for me. And the fact that I get to do it competitively and with like, uh, financial help is amazing. Um, cause not a lot of people get to do that. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us have had that experience of moving to a new place, particularly post collegiately, where it's like, you don't have like Insta friends because you're yeah. not, like a freshman in college anymore. You're an adult and you have to like build community somehow, which no one, there should be a class on that in college or something, but oh. those, those running groups definitely like bring a lot of us along. And so I'm kind of wondering, you know, you just started running trail a couple of years ago. And I think we're all really curious to hear a little bit more about like how trail came to be, I think a large part of your life right now. And then also kind of those initial impressions of the trail community specifically. And if there are differences between the road community and the trail community that you found that you gravitated towards or were just different. Yeah. Um, so I started, well, I mean, it's just funny that I, that there's like a distinction between trail running and road running. Cause when I was in high school, I never would have distinguished those from each other. It was just like, Oh, I just go run in this place some days. And then I just go run in this other place some days. But it was like, I didn't realize that trail running as a sport was actually a thing until a few years ago. Um, which is so 
funny because now like looking at like even at Broken Arrow or a lot of these races, like so many young, amazing, fast people like, dang it. Well, if I had known (laughs) in college (laughs) that that was a thing I could do, that would be pretty cool. Like I'd probably be really fast, but, um, but yeah, I think I, I really found out that I wanted to explore trail running as a sport um, after I moved to North Carolina. I had like done a bunch of trail runs and traveled a bunch of places around Texas and New Mexico to go run on different trails, but I didn't really see that uh, as an actual thing until after I moved to North Carolina and like got into this little running group, which really was mostly a road running group. Um, but there were some small local trail races that were just really fun. And there's this one in particular called the Copperhead 50 K it's in like coastal North Carolina, uh, outside of Wilmington where I did grad school. And it's so funny because it's like, you could do a 50 K that's a bunch of different loops or, uh, you could do a relay. Um, but no matter what, at every loop, you have to chug either a beer or chug a whole glass of chocolate milk. And you like, don't have a choice. You know, you have to chug one of those things. Like you can't opt out. That is pure Uh, evil. Yeah. And I was like, well, I hate beer, but I really can't chug milk. So actually, no, I think you can, yeah, you can opt out, but then it's like, you get a time reduction if you chug a thing. So yeah, Uh, but but that was really fun. And that was like my first real introduction into a trail race. And it was so fun because it's just like people out having a good time getting so drunk (laughs) on the trails. And that was the first time that I heard about like, um, really ultras in the big ultra sense. Cause I was talking to this woman who had run the full 50 K and, uh, she was talking about doing the Bigfoot 200 someday. And I was like, what is this race? And so I looked it up and I was like, oh my gosh, that looks so crazy. I, and I was like, I think I want to do that someday. That looks really cool because it, it was just like the idea of being able to traverse the cascade range sounds so awesome. Um, but then I was like, I don't think I could do a 200 miler, like right off the bat. That sounds a little bit crazy. So I signed up for the 40 miler because I thought the 20 miler would be, would like not be challenging enough. And then I didn't train for the 40 miler at all. (laughs) I just like showed up and ran this race. Well, really like hiked it mostly. And it was hilarious because I didn't bring, like I brought some water with me, but I brought like one pack of uh, those cliff shot blocks. And then, <laughs> and then I stopped at every aid station and just ate watermelon the whole time. <laughs> and then I was like, wow, this is awesome. Uh, and then after the race, I felt absolutely horrible. <laughs> it was like, I cannot walk and my stomach feels horrible, <laughs> but it was so much fun. And it was like my first real intro into trail running and just like the whole time I was doing the race I was just talking to people and it was really great and everyone was just so friendly which I guess to lead into the the difference between the trail running and road running community is like I think that's a little bit of the difference where like not everyone takes trail running so seriously um and it doesn't have to be serious all the time and like you can just have fun and chat with each other in the middle of a race which I find really nice uh because it's like okay this is pretty low stakes like we're just out here trying to have fun in nature which is 
like all I want <laughs> ever. Um, versus in road running, sometimes I feel like I I would get a little burnt out with like how competitive the mentality was. And it's like everyone's just chasing times, chasing times. And like, and I can appreciate that from a competitive perspective coming from track and cross country, but um, but it can be a little draining and like you want running to be lighthearted. Um, and I feel like road racing all the time was taking away from me, like really loving running. Um, and so trail running was like this nice uh, reprieve from some of that. Um, yeah. And now I get to trail run competitively, which is like a little bit of a, a mix up for my brain, <laughs> but but for the most part, um, yeah, I just, I really enjoy the, the trail running community because it has been pretty welcoming to me. Um, and yeah, I just like, I see that. And then I see again, still like the similar disparity of diversity. And a lot of that does come down to access to a lot of these trail systems and just like awareness that you can even run in really cool places. Um, and so, yeah, like part of what I want to pursue like now, but also in the future is like really helping increase access to, uh, different places and increasing diversity. And I don't know, like if I'm doing that actively right now, but I see that as a goal for myself within the sport. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I got that sense from your website too, where you've been linking to a lot of different policies and different groups that are advocating for a lot of this, like increase awareness for underserved populations and also just like building new systems of outdoor space for this group, because obviously that's really important too. Um, and we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later, but, um, for now we'll stay on the running front. Um, and so kind of to your previous point, I think it's hilarious that you said how, like, I guess how like engaged the community was right away, because we've been talking about that a lot lately on the last couple of pods, me and Corinne have been talking about Western States and pretty much everyone we talk to is like, yeah, I want to beat that person, but I also love them so much and want them <laughs> to succeed and like all of these things. And I just feel like that is in an essence trail running um, at its core. Um, and you've gotten to see some prestigious races. Now you had success at broken arrow, Corinne cheered you on. Um, but you're also kind of standing for what you believe in. And so we saw that you recently signed with normal. Why don't you talk us through that decision and how that company aligns with some of your beliefs? Yeah. Um, yeah. Normal was a pretty cool company that I got introduced to through Dakota Jones, um, who's one of my friends and it was, I don't know, just like a, a very I mean, I had been looking for a footwear sponsor for a little bit. I'm like usually not very picky about shoes, but I just, yeah, I struggled with how expensive shoes are and then also how short of a lifespan they have. And and everyone has this problem, right? Like we're all trying to maximize the amount of miles we put on our shoes. And just even thinking about the lifespan of our shoes is a little bit crazy, not just running shoes, but all shoes in general. And I think signing with normal was really decisive for me because they have this platform of sustainability in a, in a more durability perspective where they want to maximize the amount of time you can use your shoes, which I think is amazing. And like, not really a thing that we talk about 
really when we talk about sustainability, it's more like, oh, it's made from these green materials and it's biodegradable and all of these things. But in reality, what we're looking for is just like having high quality gear and like having it last us a very long time, if not our lifetime. Um, so then we don't have to keep buying more and more things. And that seems, and, and I also sort of love it because it's a little bit anti-capitalistic, <laughs> which I love because I don't really appreciate <laughs> the ways that our economic systems work. But yeah, just like trying to essentially get the bang, the most bang for your buck in your shoes while also having like a really great piece of the gear um that works for performance if you want it to or works for just like going out for a fun easy jog um and I also really appreciate normal like I'm still I I signed on with them this past fall but it's so funny because it's like sort of a small team of people and they're very goofy and they're like very open and transparent about like how much they're also trying to learn as a brand in terms of like how to reach the most people and like how to tell stories about different things. And I love that, like just the, the authenticity about, uh, yeah, authenticity and just being transparent about the process. Um, cause I, I also don't know much about brands or like the outdoor industry or marketing. Um, but I feel like for the most part, like a lot of brands just try to be so uh, rigid and like, just like, I don't know, I just want character. <laughs> and and I think they provide a lot of character with the team and it's just been really fun to be with them so far. Um, and I think like, I'm also uh, sponsored by Patagonia for apparel. And I think um, like they are aligned pretty well, the two brands on their sustainability initiatives and what they want. And so like finding ways to, to have collaborations with those two will be really cool mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I know like Dakota is talking about that as well, especially with his footprints camp and all these things. So yeah, I'm like really grateful and also a little bit amazed that I'm on the normal team because I'm like, why am I on a team with Killian? <laughs> and I was about to say that. Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness, my teammate is Killian. Like what yeah. the heck? That's so yeah. cool. I'm just like, this is really random. I get to like WhatsApp with him periodically for PTRA stuff. And I'm like, I'll text my husband and I'll be like, I just texted Killian. No big deal. <laughs> Casual. Got a Zoom invite from Killian today. No big deal. Um, but you just alluded to Dakota Jones, who's a friend of Free Trail and his footprints camp. We know that you've actually gone out the last, I think, two years to help with the camp. And we'd love to hear more about that experience and what the goals are of footprints and for the campers who attend. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at Footprints, I was a mentor for both years. Um, both were held in Silverton, Colorado, which is pretty cool. It's like my first intro to high mountain running really, which was hilarious. Cause the first year I like had an asthma attack on, on Mola's pass. And they, they were like, we'll bring you down to lower elevation. And it was like, you're bringing me down to Silverton, which is still 9,000 feet. <laughs> um, but okay. Uh, but no, the camp is amazing. Like I think there's this really cool atmosphere. Like, I don't know. I think it's mostly Dakota and Nate Bender who pick the campers, which is so amazing because they pick like 
the most amazing people I've ever met. Like, it's just really cool to meet people who have, I mean, you don't have to come to the camp and have a fully fleshed out project. Like that's really part of the process of footprints is to come in with a project that you like, just an idea of something that you want to do, like something that is maybe aligned with a passion or a hobby that you have um, and ways that you can see yourself and your personal story entangle with this particular thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like a climate change related project. It can be anything that is intended to be beneficial to some community of people. Um, And so I think that's pretty cool because initially going into the footprints camp, I was thinking like, okay, well, it's all people that are coming in with climate stories and like climate change related projects. And it's really not, and it's pretty innovative. And, and I think it's cool because they pick projects that touch a, a lot of intersections of different social issues. Like last year, there was a camper who came in who, she's a writer and she wanted to do something around um like increasing uh, accessibility of resources and like raising awareness of how much work uh, women do, especially like single women uh, or uh, sorry, single or yeah, when women are the only uh, parent uh, for a household, like just raising awareness about that and like the particular roles that all of these women take. Um, and I just thought that that was so cool because it's not like no one on the face would think that that's a climate related issue, but in reality it actually is because all of these climate change impacts, uh, whether you're talking about like natural disasters or like increasing prices of utilities because we're reducing or we have a limited amount of resources, like all of that comes down to impacting people that are more vulnerable or have less access to certain resources. And so it's like, this is a climate change narrative because everyone is inherently impacted by this and it can happen in so many different ways that you wouldn't necessarily piece together in your mind. Um, and I also love that because then there's not this big pressure that you have to be like a scientist to know everything about uh, climate change. Um, like you can come in with just something that you're you're really interested in, just a topic. And then the way that camp is structured is for every camper, they ha- they're paired with a certain mentor. And this is all happen happening beforehand. So before the campers come to the camp, you're paired with your camper as a mentor you are. Um, so you sort of have an idea of your camper's background as you're going in. And then throughout the week, you get in your uh, mentor camper pairings and you work through different things every day. And you also like workshop with other pairings um, to talk about different ideas around your particular topic or like share your personal narrative um, and people will like give you feedback on that. Um, and I think that's really cool. And at the same time, it's also, um, like also sort of expanding the running community as well. Um, because you're meeting people from across the world, uh, that are also runners that you probably wouldn't have necessarily met, uh, in another way, which I find really fun. Cause I've seen so many footprints people. <laughs> 
<laughs> like around um, Boulder specifically. There are like tons of people in Boulder that have done the footprints camps, um, like either mentored or were campers. And then also at different races. And it's just so funny because it's like, maybe I would have met this person at some point, but it's really cool that I met this person during this particular event. And then now I get to see them and follow them around um, at all these other races or all these other running events. And I think that's so beautiful. Um, And just like the camp itself has so much um, vulnerability as well entangled within it. Cause I've mentioned several times, like you're sharing your personal narrative. A lot of times the campers are at least, and then inherently as a mentor, you're sort of giving your own level of vulnerability in it as well. But because there's that aspect to it, you just get really close to people. Um, and yeah, and I think that's really necessary in order to to make your projects the best that they can be and then actually have them become a reality. Um, and I think it's just been really cool to see where the campers have gone as well, like from doing the camp and how far they are within their project. Um, it's just all a really cool experience. Um, and I'm really jealous that there's going to be one in Australia and in Mallorca. And I want to go to both of them. So I don't know. We'll see. Dakota, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Take Peyton to my <laughs> Take Peyton with you. <laughs> I thought oh, the Mallorca's really cool. got like a double dip, right? You could be like, it's a normal Mallorca yeah. event slash. <laughs> I feel like we could double dip there somewhere. Oh, Killian, yes. Emily, Dakota, whoever's listening to this. Yeah. Hey, Paige, Paige Elliott, if you're listening to this, oh, yeah. tell Dakota Peyton <laughs> wants to go to Mallorca. There, yeah. I think we're done. I think they know now. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of touched on it, but like what is the age range of the campers and like how have you seen some of the projects take life? Like I'm so fascinated by this. Yeah, so the first year um the campers were really more college age, so like 18 to 22, and then last year the campers were um a little bit older like uh spanning from the college age but then going up to like late 30s early 40s which I think was really cool because yeah you just get to see like how everyone approaches the the process and like how in depth people are into the particular topic that they're pursuing like some people came in they're like uh like this guy, Luke, for example, who I think is actually going to be a mentor for the Vermont camp because um, he's like a full-fledged adult and has <laughs> worked with kids his entire life doing different uh, wilderness skills. Um, and so, yeah, like he's going to be a mentor, which I think is pretty cool because he like has so much knowledge and wisdom um, within him. And yeah, just he... Uh, I forget exactly what his project was focused on, but it was really trying to go more in depth with his relationship with uh, the camp or with the um, kids that he works with and like really bringing more uh, underprivileged kids into outdoor environments where they're not necessarily like where they wouldn't necessarily have access to, um, which I think is really awesome. Um, Thinking back from the first year, uh, so in Dakota, actually, I don't know if he mentioned this in his 
he did like a footprints talk at Western States. Um, but one of his campers, Abby Sullivan, uh, she lives in upstate New York and she had this project around the Finger Lakes up there. Um, she's grown up around the Finger Lakes her entire life. And it was like a huge part of her formative experience, uh, as a triathlete and the Finger Lakes are, uh, experiencing this really big algal bloom problem. Um, and the Finger Lakes are also this huge tourist attraction. Uh, so people go up just to get on the lakes and hang out. Um, and so she thought that it would be a cool idea to put on some sort of race uh, around the Finger Lakes to raise awareness about this algal bloom project and then like get local businesses involved. Um, and yeah, like talk with people or talk with like local council about how they can reduce algal bloom, uh, like the lead up to algal blooms, like uh, maybe reducing erosional processes into the lake or reducing farm uh, nutrient inputs into the lakes. Um, so, and her project is actually, I don't know if her, I think her um, run is actually happening either this weekend or next weekend. Um, but yeah, it's in upstate New York and it's like going through this little town and she's like putting it together. And I think it's really cool because they got a lot of uh, support from local businesses for the run um, to like promote it or to promote the businesses, but also to raise awareness about this issue. And like, she's also gotten a lot of support from local leadership um, like, I think it's just really awesome that she had this idea. She knew a lot about the, the science of it. Um, like why these algal blooms were happening. She was doing, or she was interested in doing some remote sensing work, uh, for the lakes, uh, to like actually look at the algal blooms and be able to visualize the impact, uh, to the community. Um, and yeah, and she's actually making it happen, which is really awesome. Um, and then my camper, uh, Grace Williams, my first year, which I think is so funny that she was mine because she was originally supposed to be a camper for this professor in Boulder, um, Pete Newton, who does a ton of like agriculture research, uh, in a bunch of different areas. And originally Grace's project was focused on, uh, trying to do something around, uh, changing the narrative around agriculture or composting specifically in Bloomington, Indiana, because she was going to college there at the time. And she was like, the, the agriculture industry is like such a big influence here. And um, I want to do something to like bring people together because we have really conservative people. And then we have really liberal people associated with the university doing research, but like they don't commingle with each other. And we also don't have like a very cohesive uh system of being able to handle our waste. So I want to do something with composting. And so uh, I stepped in as Grace's mentor for that project um, because Pete had to leave like halfway through the week. Um, and I think it's so funny because I don't know a lot about like agriculture, but I did like I was doing some work with the composting council in Wilmington North Carolina at the time. So I was like, okay, I can handle this. And then she fully changed her project to like 
the second day to being something more around um, storytelling and using uh, photography and videography as a way to tell people's stories and their connections with the environment. Um, And I think that's so cool because like through that camp, she's like, she's a a photographer now. Um, so she like got connected with a bunch of different, uh, photographers and she interned with, uh, Q Martin out in Flagstaff last year. And like, yeah, has been, has been doing a ton of work to like build out her portfolio and fully realize that reality. But it was so funny because like through this camp, she realized like what job she wants. Um, I was like, that's great. That's like the ultimate goal, I guess. But yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> this is such a small world. Um, I paced Pete Newton at Leadville like several Aww. years ago. I <laughs> love Pete. A, he's so he's great. He's so great. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're talking about some of us like, okay, so tell me exactly like what you're what you're doing in your research. Such a small world. It's awesome. We won't <laughs> we won't tell him that he made her change her career path. <laughs> I was like, I need to meet Pete now. I feel like the odd one out. Yeah. That's rare. Um, but it, I mean, it's photography is so important because that's the way we can raise awareness around these kind of issues, you know, and that's kind of half of the half of the battle. Um, yeah. And I hope that if we can show the trail running community, especially because, you know, we're kind of a trail running podcast and we can only try to fix so many things. Um, I would hope that if we start showing the trail running community, some of these things and tell them how they can start helping that they would take, it would take flight. Um, and you've written a really cool blog about this titled every runner should be an environmental advocate. And it discusses the intricacies of running in environmental justice. And I think it just really highlights your personal connection with nature, but I also really, really enjoyed it. And so kind of how Corinne always phrases this is I'm going to read your words back to you. In a little bit of a creepy way, just bear with me and then uh, have a little bit of a follow up question for you about this piece. Yeah. So your piece goes, anyone who pursues running experiences the outdoors, whether that be on the city streets or on a remote trail, the spaces we see shape how and why we run. When we see industrial chemical plants, streets littered with garbage, not a tree or shrub in sight, we don't see beauty. We don't see healthy living nor a safe space for running. Everyone deserves both of these entities, no matter your economic status, race, religion, gender, or sexual identity. Runners of all forms should be welcome and should speak up for the environment around them, because when our surroundings are healthy and prosperous, we are as well. So in your mind, what could we do as a trail running kind of collective, small community that we are, to start to take care of the environment in in the smallest way possible? Smallest way possible... I mean, give give our audience something tangible to start and then we'll go bigger (laughs) after this. (laughs) Okay. Um, I guess smallest way possible would be to just like, I mean, for me, at least trail running is all about community and conversation with people. So just having conversations with people about different issues that are going on, like it doesn't necessarily have to be an environmental issue, but yeah, like having a little bit more depth in your conversation about like things going on in your local area, because you might find that someone may not know about a certain thing going on, uh, like a plant being proposed in a certain area. Um, And that could be super helpful, like just expanding your network of people um, that would be attuned to uh, yeah, like certain things going on in your community. Um, I mean, it's like, it's so funny because it's like the most basic thing, 
<laughs> it's just like uh conversation <laughs> communication but it's so crazy i think it's a bit difficult because we are inherently so connected in this reality uh like just with all the technology that we have but sometimes we don't actually have like tangible conversations about what can really be done or uh understanding the process of the way like certain industries can put in different places um, or like, yeah, I just feel like a, a lot of us, like even myself don't know enough about the whole process, especially in America for like the way that decisions get decided <laughs> and the way things get done. So yeah, just having conversations um, around different issues that you heard about in the news or like saw down the street is super helpful. We've been having some conversations at Free Trail with the Outdoor Alliance um, geared towards this idea that trail runners are, are great stewards. We love stewardship. We love trail days. We love picking up trash. Like we we love to go out into our backyards and like protect or help that little bit of trail that's <laughs> closest to us. And their big push is to try to turn trail runners from stewards to advocates. And I feel like kind of given your space within footprints and the work that you're doing, now I'm kind of curious, like we're grappling with that, like internally at free trail a little bit, like how can we best convince trail runners to like take a step out of the like hard hat trail maintenance crew to like also be advocates for the environment around them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say that like everyone should be a, a policy nerd or like anything like that, but I mean, a lot of it, like a lot of the decisions about where trails get put or like who has access to certain trails or yeah, like what uh, people can be present in a certain area does come down to um, decision-making by the powers that be. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, like maybe, and maybe this is difficult. I don't know if free trail can say things like, oh, support this policy or whatever, like go check out this hearing or something like that. Um, but I think those are like really good opportunities to sort of extend the, the, the advocacy uh, or like extend the stewardship um, because yeah, I think it would be amazing if like every single person in the trail running community could do trail work for whatever local trails they have. But the trails themselves are just like a small little snippet of the the places, like the ecosystems that we're in um, and the, the access or yeah, like the resources that we have. Um, so yeah, I think in a way it needs to go beyond that, like picking up trash on the trail. Like we just have to vocalize what we want. Uh, yeah. And I think the nice thing, what I told Tanya from Outdoor Alliance is like, we're not beholden to anyone. Like we don't have like investors who are paying our bills at free trail. So we can, we can be like, Hey, call your representatives. Like yeah, here's sure. a template for that stuff. And I think you're, we're, you're going to see more of that from us. And I, I hope in conjunction with, with you and Dakota and, and Nate Bender and that crew can be some of the hosting platforms for that stuff. Cool. Fingers crossed, team. Keep all those fingers crossed. Hold us accountable. Keep sliding into our DMs to tell me that, but we're we're working on it. <laughs> honestly, just to close it out, I was going to ask you a bit of a funny question, and then we'd love to just give you space to promote your new own event, 
that you have a, another really good acronym for called earth. Um, and so before that, what kind of keeps you up at night? Like, what do you think about most when you're out on a trail run about this whole world that we're in right now? Um, honestly, <laughs> I just, it's probably really sad. I think I just think about, yeah, like all the destruction that's happening, <laughs> which isn't very good. I don't know. I don't, I feel like it's hard because trails bring me so much joy. And then I just think about like really negative things that are happening in the world. And I'm like, okay, well, how can I counteract this? But then that's hard because that's a really big question and a lot to put on yourself. I talked to my therapist about this. <laughs> <laughs> plug plug one for therapists, this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's critical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are all in the therapy boat. So totally good with that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, let's just end on a positive note then. Um, so you've recently started hosting your own event called earth equitable action run towards health and your event is going to be this September. And so talk us through the aim of this group and what prompted you to want to start, help start it. And then who's the retreat for who can come? Yeah. So first anyone can come. Um, it's a free event. It's for everyone. So it's really this event that sort of came into my mind because of a series of things happening, but it all started with trail running, um, which I think is pretty cool. Like trail running and the community that, that is, that has, that trail running has brought me really brought me to this, uh, wood pellet biomass issue that is happening across the Southeast. And I'll say that because I found out about this issue and when I was living in North Carolina um, and I lived on the coast and I had to drive hours to the mountains to get to any possible mountain because it's like at least a five and a half hour drive to get there. But as you're going through uh, these small towns, you see so much deforestation and then you see these massive plants. And I was really confused at first because I didn't really know what that was. Um, and then I came upon this group in Wilmington, um, that's called Dogwood Alliance. They used to have a headquarters in Wilmington, but their whole, uh, basis is focusing on, uh, basically, uh, getting, generating awareness about the wood pellet biomass issue, but also trying to find, uh, policy opportunities for reducing the harms of the industry in the U.S., um, and for people who don't know about the wood pellet biomass issue, cause like, it's not a very mainstream <laughs> issue. Um, it is this industry that is built on the premise of using, uh, trees. So you basically, uh, ground down trees into these manufactured pellets. Um, and then you're going to burn them. Um, and people use wood pellets for like, small scale uh, grills and things like that. But mm -hmm. I think that's where the distinction is pretty different because these pellets are made of a different formulation that contain a lot of different chemicals. Um, and then they're being burned on a mass industrial scale, like to provide electricity for cities and towns. Um, so it's this whole uh, industry is built on the premise that uh, wood is a renewable resource and therefore it is a climate solution, but it's not a climate solution because at all points of this process, you're emitting so much carbon. Um, like the whole process is very carbon intensive, even though 
there have been some articles that are saying that it is carbon neutral. Some of those have special interests unfortunately. Um, but yeah, and some of that comes down to like the tree stands that are being planted to replace these areas. But a lot of those tree stands are monocultured pine plantations. Um, and this is, this industry is mostly prevalent in the Southeast, but there are plants in other parts of the country. Um, they're just not as big. And the reason why they're concentrated in the Southeast is because of the proximity to ports um, because all of these products are being shipped to other countries for burning. Um, and so a major component of this, um, so this was the particular industry that I was seeing every time I would drive out to the mountains, uh, go through Roberson, North Carolina, that has a wood pellet plant, um, and see that impact. It creates these like intense, plumes. Um, and you'll see the smokestacks if you ever pass by one. Uh, but yeah, the it deeply disintegrates the air quality in uh, the communities that live around there. And it's usually small rural communities um, that are dealing with these impacts. It's a really big environmental justice issue in the Southeast. And I just thought that people didn't really like a lot of people don't know much about it. And there's a lot of opportunity right now to denounce the industry and find actual renewable resource solutions that could be beneficial for everyone, because right now it's not necessarily benefiting the U S except for in an economic way. And we have other options um, and it's not benefiting communities because it's causing negative health impacts. Um, and it's just, uh, reducing the amount of trees that are in an area. And at least in the Southeast, like I grew up with, so just like loving trees, like being in the woods was my favorite way to spend my day. Um, and like just thinking that a lot of people wouldn't be able to have that experience, um, is pretty heartbreaking for me. Um, but yeah, so like a lot of my personal story is built in the process of this event, but basically it's an event in Southern Mississippi and the Homochitta National Forest to raise awareness about the issue, but also support a specific community, um, Gloucester, Mississippi, that has three different wood manufacturing plants in it, but the biggest one is Drax um, and their wood pellet facility, and they've been causing really horrible air pollution. They got fined a couple of years ago. Um, but that money did not go to the town. Um, and a lot of these people are dealing with new respiratory issues, um, a lot of different cancers. Um, and yeah, so it's an ongoing issue. So it's there to, you know, support the local community, but also to raise awareness on a broader scale about this issue and have people want to take action. And then at the same time, like I didn't think like Southern Mississippi doesn't have a huge trail running community. And so that's another reason to, to bring people here because the, the national forest, there's so beautiful. It's like rolling Hills and you're just in the trees and, and there, the area where the run will be is situated on this really pretty Lake. Um, yeah, it's just like a really beautiful area. And I don't think a lot of people have been there. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to also highlight this place that may not often be on the, like the first place that people would think of to go run. So it provides an avenue for people to come explore a new place or start running if they've never run in a race before, or you can walk if you want. Um, but yeah, it's like an, an open event for anyone. So. 
Everyone should come. <laughs> so cool. No, seriously. I mean, I have, Mississippi. If I have some bandwidth in my <laughs> schedule, I will try to make it. I've never been to Mississippi. Got to yeah. cross it off the list. It sounds so like fun. Cornus Hall's done like a really fast 50 mile race. I feel like it's in Mississippi. Mississippi. Hmm. Interesting. Oh. I don't think I'm mix, mixing up Mississippi and Missouri. I'm pretty sure it's Mississippi. <laughs> But you might. <laughs> I could be really wrong, but I'm I'm almost, I'm like 90% positive it's Mississippi, yeah. but leave it to my mush brain to decide it's not. But Very that's fair. that's really, really yeah. cool. I mean, we had a pellet stove in college in Montana, like hundred percent. Like that's powerhouse was heated was a pellet stove. Um <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really cool initiatives like that, like um converting um specific like stove and cook cooking surfaces on a lot of like third world countries across like across the world mm. has a vast impact on carbon outputs and like residential air quality. So yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that in our own backyard that needs to get right. done as well, which is huge. But it's is it my understanding is correct that something can be considered carbon neutral if they burn a ton of wood, but then they just replant some trees. Yep. Totally. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's a tricky definition there. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, but what part of the situation? Yeah. And they're just planning um, like big pine plantations over what would be mixed hardwood for it. And so it's like, what are the ecological impacts of this? These trees are like way faster growing. Sure. But what does that mean for like the rest of the ecosystem? But yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hair. That's a, that's a rabbit hole for sure. (laughs) Uh, I guess kind of the final thing is like, we'll link to all this in our show notes. We'll link to this event as well as your, um, that blog post that Keely read back to you so expertly, (laughs) but is there, is there any other, like if people are want to reach out to you about your work or about footprints or other initiatives that you're involved in, where the, where's the best place that they can, they can find you. Yeah. Sometimes, well, I guess it depends on how my Instagram sorts messages, but I found Keely, so that's good. (laughs) But people can find me on Instagram. Um, I'll answer those uh, or my email. should I say my email? If you if you if you want to say your email on a podcast, (laughs) we'll email you. Okay, I don't mind. my email is p e y t o n t one two three at gmail dot com. Uh, so Peyton t one two three. Awesome. We can link that too, so they don't forget. Perfect. We're yeah. Maybe we'll get some now. really cool collaborations yeah. out of this. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Just don't call me because I don't answer your call. <laughs> Peyton Peyton Thomas, not your emergency contact. We hope that you loved that interview with Peyton as much as we did. A round two has to be coming down the pipeline because there's a whole chapter of stuff we did not even get to dive into. And if you would like to find Peyton or find out more about what she's up to, what she's doing, you can go over to www.peyton-thomas.com. It's got everything you could possibly ask for there. And we will link to her website in our show notes. To close things out though, we've got to do some society slamming. I think Keely and Hillary, you threw some stuff in here. I'm wondering if one of you wants to kick off um, with the questions. Cause I think the questions that were, that were written in were really awesome. Yeah. That's all Hillary. So she's got it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if we can do a little round table. Um, but basically this is, and this is maybe something we can go into uh, more detail and then ask me anything um, podcast, but these two questions. So for, uh, question one, how do you go about finding pacers? 
I just ran my first 50 K and I'm interested in progressing up to hundred mile, but, um, of my friends who are going to sign up to run more than a half marathon distance. Like that's, it seems like it's kind of a lot for them. And so some of the longer ultras look like they have pacers running 20 to 30 miles and help. That's basically help. what the question <laughs> Yeah. Is. I liked the little help. Yeah. There the that's, that's tricky. And every yeah. race is different, right? Like every race, uh, that was a big thing with cascade crest. Like if I couldn't find a third pacer, some, one of my pacers was going to have to pull like a, you know, a 30 plus mile pacing leg. And that's a huge, it's asking someone to pace more than 20 miles is a a huge ask. Um, for sure. Being someone's emotional support creature on the trail for that long is, is not easy. So I think it's like, really, it's going to come down a little bit to like what race you're signing up for. But one thing that I think is really cool is that oftentimes, even if they're not your friends pace, I love having a good friend who's a pacer, but I've actually had like kind of like last minute people have to sub in for pacers before and it's worked out Mm -hmm. total it's worked out fine and a lot of races actually either via their website or a google drive like a google doc or um, a facebook page or or something like that they have like a community forum and it can be like runners looking for pacers and pacers looking for runners and that to me might be the best way to kind of solve that conundrum for you is that you can generally speaking find um pacers through those sources, or if you know a friend who lives in that area, right. Friend of friends, reaching out to that running community specifically, et cetera. Like I, every year for Western States, I'm like plugging everyone in the San Francisco community, trying to find last minute pacers mm, for people. Right. So people like and, will step up for strangers in this community in a big way. Totally. And it's just like that thing that I was saying before about like the, you know, that the community in general, it's like everyone has a story to share. So it could be actually really fun to like, Maybe if it's like, I don't know about you, but like, if, I mean, I've never had like, you know, Corinne, you said your husband paced you for a section of, um, this is the first time he's ever paced me during, during a hundred. I would be terrified if my significant other were going to do any of that for me. Um, and I'd probably just get like pissed at them be like, no, I don't want to eat. Or I'd just be like angry (laughs) Hillary. So it would be nice maybe if it's a complete stranger. Cause then you'd be like, oh, you want to like, kind of keep it the illusion that you're cool and like together even later in a race. So it could be, could be (laughs) cool. I would say though, like, don't hesitate to challenge your friends to train, to pace you because like for Mm -hmm. me, for Western States, I've had like all my girlfriends, like make it their goal to get ready for it. And then they like sign up for a race. That's like a month after States. And they're like, no, of course I can pace you 21 miles because I'm training for it. And like that gets them excited. And obviously like, it's not going to be every friend that's going to feel like they want to do that. But I like as someone who's paced a lot and as someone who's had pacers do that for me, like, it's really fun to pace someone and you feel like really important and you want to be there for them. So if you have friends willing to run a half marathon, I feel like maybe one or two of them, you could convince to get ready for a 20, especially reminding them that while you're running a hundred miles, like that 20 miles is not going to be anything blazing fast. So no, it's, it's likely yeah. there's going to be some walking. There's going to be some, <laughs> some story time out there. So I think it's, uh, I th- yeah, I think Keely's very right that you can probably talk at least a friend into maybe prepping for a road marathon or for a 50 K and that they like getting up to that 18 to 22 ish mile training mark and feeling comfortable at that distance, like can happen for sure. Yeah. And I think, okay. So the other, uh, the other one, <clears throat> we can all answer this. It's like kind of a bonus society slam. We'll have, we'll just do all of our answers. Um, so the biggest, my biggest blocker to agree to tackle a hundred mile race is the idea of running through the woods in the dark. Um, I feel like it breaks all the rules about mountain and forest safety I've ever learned, i.e. don't run alone, avoid dawn and dusk, 
I'm I'm thinking mountain lions in that sentence. Um, it's hard not to feel like you're like you're going to be prey. <laughs> um, asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, there's a good emoji used to like a yeah. emoji. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It does feel really counterintuitive, right? But I think that it's not. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of trail safety stuff where it's like, yeah, you need you do need to be careful. But akin to anything, right? It's like you know, if you can carry a tracker on you, you can, um, like my biggest thing, if I'm running by myself, it's I tell someone where I'm going right day mm-hmm. or night type of thing. So I think that there's like, given that you're on a hundred mile race course where you're running checkpoint to checkpoint, and you're likely coming into a checkpoint every four to eight miles or so, um, with volunteers and other runners on the course, I think that those are the things that really help to bring down the overall danger of, um, you know, kind of quote unquote, feeling like you're breaking those rules and then potentially again, having a pacer, which you're generally going to pick up in the back half of the race for those overnight hours. Um, in most particular, in most U S races that start in the AM hours, obviously there are races that start at 5 PM, et cetera. But, um, I think it's the, the knowledge of there is safety in numbers, given that you will be out on the trail with other runners, even if there's no one in your immediate vicinity. Right. And the other thing I would add to that, I mean, like obviously like there are a, a, a lot of races in the Western United States have a lot of, have a lot more animals like to worry about like big, like predators. Right. Um, and so like running with like bells or something like this could, could help, or like, honestly, like talking to yourself and, um, like there's other runners out there. Right. Um, but, uh, like I have these same, same things if I run in, you know, Montana with, with bear spray, it can be quite intimidating. Um, but I also think, um, it's actually a lot more fun than you think. Like some of, some of the instances that I've had, like racing at night, like through the night, it's so cool. Mm-hmm. And, um, if you can make like a little bit of noise, like you're going to scare off animals and be like, what the heck is this human doing running through the night? Like, like you're breaking all the rules for those, those predators out there. They're not going to, they're not going to want to eat you. Or another thing is, you know, you could race in Europe. There's no big animals there to scare <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. It's like definitely very location based, right? I don't know where this runner is from. Yeah. Um, and every race is different, right? Like every race has different, uh, potential critters or lack mm-hmm. of critters. So right. Keely, anything that you want to add there? Mm, no, I feel like just make sure that real animals you're afraid of and not like ones you're hallucinating. Cause you're, you're bonky. Yeah. Yeah. Squirrels sound really intimidating, but they're still just squirrels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like everything I hear on the Western States course, even in the middle of the day, I'm like, that's a cougar. That's definitely a cougar. Man, it's, <laughs> it's like oftentimes a squirrel. Yeah. Um, and then I think we should give out one more. We got kind of, someone wrote in a nice shout out. Mm-hmm. Hill, you want to read, read it. And then we can talk just that so we can give a little, some extra shout outs to that, to that event. Yeah. So it's a nice shout out. Um, so love the podcast. Thank you. Um, I hope you get a chance to highlight how women, how the women's finisher rate at Heart Rock was 93%. Um, she said, uh, I got to attend the 2022 ladies of Hard Rock event. And one of the women said she felt like such a strong push to finish because she knew how many other women wouldn't, would have loved to have the opportunity that she had. And she was running for them. Uh, she says she loves trail culture, but I extra love the female trail culture. Can we start, can we start a hashtag femme trail culture? <laughs> Maybe that might be, I think, I think we can work on this. But yeah. I think so. The, the, the stats, Free trail femme? Oh, yeah, the, the stats were, it's already a thing. Join the Slack channel. <laughs> um, there's a, a, so there were 29 female starters, 27 of them finished. One uh, had a drop early, I think due to lingering injury. 
and one uh, got timed out late in the race. So really, really cool to see. And what this was the largest ever starting field for women at hard rock things are it's we're progressing. Right. And part of that is actually like, we've had a big call to action for women who get hard rock qualifiers to apply. Even if you're not hundred percent, like, yes, I want to race this next year type of thing, because what hard rock has done is they will make sure that the starting field equates to the percent of women who have applied to the lottery. And so that number has gone up exponentially. I I think this past year, we are about 80% men, 20% women or so on applicants. And therefore that was the starting field makeup as well. They've changed their wait list strategy to also do that. They've also changed um, the categories. Like it's now just like finishers and never evers for the two categories, which means more never evers are getting in over veterans to the race, which I think is uh, progressing in the direction of getting more new folks into that race. But again, super small start fields due to permitting and everything else. And so um, big encouragement to anyone who got a hard rock qualifier to apply, Mm -hmm. even if you're not like sure that you can do it or confident that you want to be there next year, et cetera. Like there have been offers by the community to help pay for entries, to help provide coaching for free, et cetera. If you are to get in, I I told my crew, I have to finish Cascade Crest, even if things are going sideways, because I want my hard rock qualifier. So like I have mine and I will be applying to the lottery and like, we'll see what happens. But it's like the more women who apply, the higher that percent is, the more women we get to start in the field. Mm-hmm. So get your hard rock qualifier. Yeah. I want to give a shout race. out to Emily Halnan, Halnan too. She's she got in Oregon. like what? 12 hours got, before the start? Yeah. <laughs> She got in at 10.40 a.m. the day before. Oh, my gosh. And rallied there and, like, somehow wrangled. So, like, I know this mostly because my friend Danielle, which is friend of the pod, she crewed for her and paced her. She wrangled, like, this epic squad of, like, crusher pacers and crew all wearing glitter and, like, so fun and less than 24 hours. Like, so cool. Yeah, Maggie um, Guterro was, like, ready to potentially start that next morning, too. Like, she was, like... It was like, like she's the next on the wait list. And she's like, I'm either helping with the live commentary team at 6 a.m. or I'm starting (laughs) like the race. And like, we'll just see what happens. And so it's, it's a, it's cool. I mean, Courtney, obviously standout performance there. Um, We did give a shout out to the woman who was second or who is fifth at hard rock. Cause she just won Tahoe 200 outright. We did talk about that last episode. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. That was our, that was the hard rock connection in my mind. Um, But yeah. And then we've recently found out that Courtney will be doing the triple she will be at UTMB Bonkers. as well. Um, technically early September race. Um, so just, you know, can't stop her, but yeah, really impressive from, from Courtney breaking, breaking the course record to, um, Pam Reed doing the, doing Pam's, uh, the Pam slam with a Western States, Badwater hard rock triple, which we've also given a shout out on the podcast before. So just like, yeah, we're baffled by all of you. Super, super impressive. 93%. I think the men's, the men's finishing rate was lower than that. I want to say it was like 80%. They're both pretty high this year though. They're both pretty high. I mean, I think if you get into hard rock, you do everything in your, in your power to, to finish. I think a lot of people get timed out at hard rock over, over dropping. Cause it's just so stinking hard to get in. Same with Western States at this point too. Um, but we're continually inspired by you all. And continue to send i'm like what am i talking about continue to send these kind of questions in they've been really fun to answer during society slam we've done a lot of questions in the last couple episodes um and we're having a heck of a fun time answering them for you so continue to slide into our dms and until next time if we don't see you in person somewhere soon we'll see you out on the trail 